So if you turn your Bibles this morning, look at one verse and we'll have a word of prayer. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you, Lord, for your many blessings. Thank you, Lord, for this church and the pillar and ground of the truth and a, 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 uh, a lighthouse in this community and beyond just the name, in the true sense, a lighthouse, Lord. And Father, we do uh, just pray now, uh, thank you, Lord, for the service aspects we've already had, the preaching, uh, the uh, uh, singing and special music. And Lord, as we have your word preached now, Lord, as we look into some different portions of your word and make applications, as always, Father, I pray it will be a help to each one here and we'll be challenged and edified in all those areas we need. Help us have receptive hearts, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the message this morning is entitled, Personal Responsibility personal responsibility. You know, there's one thing that's so prevalent about our modern American culture, our modern humanistic society, is an unwillingness to accept personal responsibility. You probably have noticed that, okay? Whether it be in the workplace or anywhere. You know, the political world, how about that? You know, it's, nev it's never really an, a mistake, really. It's a boo-boo or something or an error in judgment. That's a big one, you know? or something like that, but it's just, uh, <clears throat> it's typical of our culture that increasingly we see this, that there's an unwillingness to accept personal responsibility. Make some examples of that. You know, over the years we've had the various mass shootings in America, and what does the mainstream media want to blame? What does our culture want to blame? They don't want to blame the shooter so often, they want to blame the gun, okay? But if you ever, you could go to any prison in America, you'd never find a gun locked up, okay? They don't lock them up. Why? Because guns aren't the ones doing it, okay? They're just a tool. It'd be like, it'd be like in locking up the car that hits somebody, you know, and say, yeah, that's a bad car. <laughs> that's a bad car. No, the driver is the one that made the error, right? The driver should be held responsible if there's an injuries and things, if it was an <clears throat> you know, accident they could have prevented. And so we see that over and over again, you know. Uh, a few years ago, I remember reading about this, a man... Uh, was intoxicated and he swerved and hit a uh, utility pole and he tried to sell, to sue the company that had the pole, okay? He tried to sue the company that had the pole. And, like that pole just jumped out there, you know, and got, tried to get him. Well, you know what? It's, it's absurd, but in some of these frivolous lawsuits, they actually do win these things, you know? Uh, because so often juries are, are swayed into thinking that, wow, you know, the insurance company's got lots of money and you know, and maybe it'll be my turn to hit it big sometime, you know, so I want to support this, you know. Well, that's the sad reality. Those are so many, so many examples like that. But how about this? We hear the expression, maybe you've been at some meeting sometime or just heard this said in some public discourse, we're all to blame. Ever heard that, we're all to blame? I don't know about you all, but when I've heard that, I sort of feel like, well, if we're all to blame, really, none of us really are to blame, you know. It sort of takes the uh, pressure off me if we're all to blame because there's sort of this idea that no one is personally responsible if we're all to blame. You know, or even worse is societies to blame. Societies to blame. But have you ever met society? <laughs> society is not something you can meet. Society is everybody. It's a collective whole. 
And to say that society is to blame is to really say again that as individuals we don't have any responsibility. You know, most people feel little personal responsibility when there's a collective guilt. When you assign a collective guilt, most people feel very little personal responsibility. It's just the old nature works that way. Now, I said the old nature, okay? Shouldn't be how we view it as believers. But a clear biblical principle, and that's what we always want to focus on, right? Is biblical principles. What does God's word say? Is that we're personally responsible for our actions. We are personally responsible for our actions. Do you know this, this, this desire to blame others, to try to say it's society's fault or it's the gun's fault or it's the telephone pole's fault or whatever, you know, it's somebody else's fault, it's everybody's fault, whatever. It's not a new idea. It actually goes back to the very first sin of Adam and Eve. It goes back to Genesis. It's part and parcel of the old nature. And so, you know, we see the, the sad uh, situation here with Adam and Eve after they disobeyed the one thing they were told not to do. Disobeyed the one thing they were told not to do. If you want to turn your Bible, certainly welcome to the Genesis chapter 3. And, you know, in the context, what's happened here, you know, uh, they, they were created innocent, but with the ability to sin. They weren't created holy. They were created innocent, and they had a free will, all right? It certainly wasn't God's will for them to sin like Calvinists claim, okay? And they do, all right? That somehow it was all God's will for them to sin, even though God told them not to, all right? So, uh, you know, that, that's a different topic for another message, right? But... Uh, we see here that after Adam and Eve, after Eve sinned and after Adam sinned, that God tried to, even though you know they had disobeyed, He still tried to get them to see their uh, guilt, to see that they had sinned. And isn't it interesting how they respond here? Uh, Genesis three twelve. Uh, here's uh, after the, the God deals with Adam first, and it says, and the man said. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Now, most of you already know this well. He doesn't just blame the woman. Because if he had just blamed the woman, he would have left out part of what he says here. He says, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me. So he actually tries to blame God. Adam tries to shift the responsibility to the woman, but also to God. Because, you know, if you just give me someone different, <laughs> you know, maybe it would have been different, right? No, Adam, you decided of a free will to disobey God. Not somehow because it's the woman's fault or it's God's fault for giving you the wrong wife. And then likewise Eve, though, tries to shift the blame in the next verse. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is it thou hast done? And we understand, of course, God is omniscient. God already knew what she had done. God's not trying to find out. It's not an investigation here. God instead is simply getting her to admit her guilt. And by the way, that's still true this very day when it comes to having a repentant spirit until a person understands they're lost and in need of a personal Savior, they're not going to be saved until they see their lost state. Right? We'll get to that more a little bit later. But uh, the Lord God said unto the woman, What is it thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. So her excuse is, Well, the serpent beguiled me. That word beguiled means tricked or deceived. All right? And uh, that's her excuse. Now, we have, it's interesting. We have a couple places in the New Testament where it, it brings out uh, some additional insight into this you know the, uh, the old testament the old testament is rich with many great truths and so many important foundational things but often we find additional things in the new testament to help us understand the old testament better second corinthians 11:3 is one of those places second corinthians 
It says, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, in the context, it's really not dealing with Adam and Eve so much here, but it gives Eve as an example that the serpent beguiled her, Satan, that is, through the serpent. But in the New Testament time, it's at the church of Corinth, evidently, like a lot of places, there were people that were trying to trick them from the simplicity in Christ. And by the way, nothing's changed. We still have that today. We have the simple gospel of Jesus Christ and then we have everything else. And that everything else is all kinds of things that are counterfeits of the truth. Whether it be Islam or whatever it may be. All the, all the cults, you know, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, whatever. So that I'm so thankful for the simplicity in Christ. I'm so thankful it's not about trying to keep 20 things or something, you know, or some long list of things I've got to do to try to be saved or keep saved or hope to be saved. But uh, you'll notice he does mention, as the serpent beguiled Eve. And then 1 Timothy 2.14. 1 Timothy 2.14 is an interesting verse that deals with this of Adam and Eve. 1 Timothy 2.14 says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. So the contrast here between Adam and Eve. The Bible tells us, and it's clear from the Old Testament as well as uh, 1 Timothy 2.14, that Eve was deceived, but not Adam. Adam came into it, as, as the expression goes, with his eyes wide open. You know, uh, They both acted out of a free will, though. They both acted out of a free will. So it's interesting that a supernatural fallen angel personally tempted and deceived Eve, and yet she was still held accountable for her actions because she had a free will. So in other words, even though... You could say, well, boy, that was really extenuating circumstances, right? Because we're not likely to have that same situation for us. And yet she was still held accountable. Both of them were. In her case particularly, she was the one that was in deception. And, you know, there's lots of examples in the Old Testament uh, of, of people who didn't want to accept personal responsibility. Probably one of the better known examples is that of Aaron. And, uh, you know, in Exodus 32... Uh, Moses went away to get the law. He left Aaron what? In charge. <laughs> he left Aaron in charge. You know, I think to making a current application, there's so many people in our culture today, most of them lost, but it could be a saved person, who want, when they're put in charge, like the benefits of being the boss, like the benefits of being in charge, like the perks that go with it, like the pay that goes with it, like the prestige, but you know what they don't want? They don't want the responsibility. They don't want the responsibility. But you know what? They go hand in hand. The person's in charge. They're also responsible. They can't say, well, you know, uh, I just want all the benefits to go with being in charge. I don't want the responsibility goes with it. But the reality is you can't separate them. And so we have this sad situation in Exodus 32. I want to start with verse 22 here where Moses confronts Aaron uh, after he brought the idolatry on the children of Israel. And notice what he was said. In, in Exodus 32, verse 22, says, And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people, that they are set on mischief. For they said unto me, Make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us out of the land of Egypt, we want not what is become of him. And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it me, then I cast in the fire, and it came out this calf. You know, so Moses, he says, you know, the, you know how the people are. They're, they're trouble, cause trouble, you know. 
And uh, we didn't know where Moses was. That's what they're saying. And uh, we don't know what's become of him. And, uh, you know, they gave me this goal, and somehow this calf just <laughs> came on the picture or something. Isn't that almost pretty much what he's trying to claim here? What he's trying to claim here? And we say, you know, but here's the thing I want to bring out first. There's a failure of leadership here, but that failure of leadership didn't just affect Aaron. And that's the principle we see over and over again. The failure of leadership, the, fa- the will- unwillingness in that of, of leadership here to accept personal responsibility, to accept that they were res- did wrong, okay, and try to blame everybody else but them, resulted in, in the, in the case here, of the people's uh, plague, having a plague. So Aaron facilitates and allows the people to get into idolatry. He encourages it along even. And then he tries to make excuses, but there was a the people were plagued from, in the, uh, from, in, from God, and we read in Exodus uh, just a little further along, Exodus thirty two thirty five, it said, "And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made." And so, again, leadership matters. So leadership failures affect others. That's true in the home. It's true in churches. It's true in countries. Leadership matter affect leadership failures affect others. We can't just say, oh, it doesn't matter, it doesn't make any difference to other people. Yeah, it does make a difference. You know, we can laugh at the ridiculousness of Aaron's excuse, and it is laughable, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's laughable. But uh, we as believers, I'm obviously putting myself in here as well, try to justify our own sins at times. You say, why would we do that? Because we have an old nature that always does that. The old nature uh, is not reformable. That's why we need a new nature in Christ. The old nature can't be fixed. Our old nature, the old man, as sometimes the Bible calls it, is never going to want to accept personal responsibility. It just isn't. It just, part, you know, I remember I uh, preached this message at my home church and one of the fellows there that, uh, you know, has a, has a position where he has a lot of people working for him. He says, you know what? I said, have you ever had any of your people you work, at work for you not want to accept personal responsibility? He says, I can only think of one that did. <laughs> Instead of all the, he probably has 100 people under him, you know. Instead of the, you know, this is so many. No, he can only think of one that did want to, is what he told me after that message. And I thought, well, that's probably how it is pretty much. But, you know, uh, you know we have the ability to, ra- to justify our own sins at times. It's not just lost people that do that. Because our old, our old natures have this ability to rationalize wrongdoings. Now, I want to look at a couple of verses that kind of give us some understanding of why this would be. Proverbs 19.21. Proverbs 19.21 says, There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. You know what that verse is telling us is that our own heart, which is part of our immaterial nature, is complex and it's not something that we'll ever fully understand. You know what the world says? You can just know yourself and you just follow your own heart. That's terrible advice. That's unbiblical advice. We should never follow our own inclinations. We're told to lean not into our own inclination. And uh, we should instead follow the principles of God's word. We ought to pray about it, but make sure that what we think is right is based on what the word of God says we should do. And then Jeremiah 17, 9 could not be clearer. Familiar verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Only God. Only God knows our own hearts. We don't know our own hearts. And so the idea we need to understand is that there's a part of us, the old nature that is, that's part of our immaterial nature, 
that does want to justify and rationalize wrongdoing, that does want to make excuses. You know, it could be everything, anything and everything. Every people, other people are doing it. You know, in a survey, a bunch of people said it was okay. Uh, uh, and there's all kinds of other things. And we'll get to some other excuses here in a second. But the biblical principle is that the end never justifies the means. So often we allow that to be set aside. The end never justifies the means. In other words, we come up with some reason, and I, I've been guilty of this, I'm sure, where, well, I know this wasn't the best thing, but, you know, here's why I did it, you know. Uh, it was for a good cause, <laughs> you know. It was for a good reason, you know. Um, and uh, we see that happen. So That is so commonplace in our society. It's certainly the political world. That's constant, okay. But it's everywhere we find. And there's a, uh, there's a term for that to a certain extent, too. There's a, there's a Greek philosophy called pragmatism. We've all probably heard it. You say, let's be pragmatic. You know what uh, one of the common expressions we have that's connected with pragmatism? You've all heard this probably. Whatever works. How often have we heard that? Whatever works. But I'm sorry. Whatever works is not something to follow. Because first of all, their idea of results, air quote time, or success, air quote time, or working is so often not a biblical result anyway. Okay? So the idea of the results they think they're getting. Okay? I can remember a former Secretary of Education back in the Reagan administration time wrote a book later called Whatever Works. Something like that, you know, when it came to education. Well, you know, he's a, law, he's a Catholic, he's a lost person, and he's just following the idea we can reform the public schools, right, <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll uh, you know, we'll just follow these different things because we have to use whatever works kind of thing. So it's a, that's pragmatism. And uh, churches do that. Let's bring in contemporary, his typical example of so many churches today. Let's bring in contemporary music, contemporary services. We'll get more people to come, you know. We'll, we'll, we'll keep the young people, right, you know. The lie of that, you know, they can bring in the world and that's all they'll have. Uh, people that are attracted to that, that's what they want to start with and so forth and so on. And so pragmatism is not just something that lost people pretty much live by in America today. It's something that as Christians we've been infected by too if we're not careful. We have to guard against it. We have to, again, we have to always again say, I'm not concerned so much about the results as I am about what I'm doing. Is it scriptural? You know, Because it doesn't matter what I claim the results are. It can never be. So in other words, you've heard this before. It's never right to do wrong in order to try to do right. Never right to do wrong in order to try to do right. So that's part of that. So the Bible clearly teaches an individual responsibility, which is why everyone needs an individual salvation by putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You know, you hear about these stories occasionally. I haven't heard it for quite a while. Maybe I've just read them. About someone supposedly in some tribal situation going to a village or something. And they said the whole village got saved. Well, I don't know about this, but I know, I know this. If they did, everybody had to personally understand they were lost and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's no way the village chief could make the rest of them saved. There's no collective salvation, right? There's a personal salvation through Jesus Christ. So if the whole village got saved, you know, men and women, boys and girls, the only way that's possible is for everybody individually to realize their lost state and come to Christ. But uh, likewise, we as believers are personally responsible for our sins. Now, we're not talking about the, the possibility of losing salvation. We know that can't be. I am thankful for that blessed doctrine of eternal security, or once saved, always saved, whatever you want to call it. That's a Bible truth. 
I'm thankful for that. But we're still personally responsible for our sins as believers. Why don't you turn your Bibles to James 1 and verse 13. James chapter 1 and verse 13. Here we have an example where evidently under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as James writing this, it looks like there's maybe some suggestion that someone was trying to not accept personal responsibility here. James 1.13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So, he's saying, a person is tempted, don't ever say, I'm tempted of God, because, and of course, and I understand the Old Testament, sometimes that word tempting is the idea of testing, but that's not what it's talking about here. Tempting, in this case, is tempted to evil, okay? Which is more commonly where we see that word used. That's how it's used. But no, God would never tempt anyone to evil because God is holy. So that goes completely contrary to the holy character of God. Uh, that word tempted, in fact, as it's looked at, is the idea of a solicitation to evil. A solicitation to evil. God is never going to solicit us to do evil. He's never going to encourage that. Satan in this world system will. Satan in this world system will. And that's why it does make a difference when it comes to separation from things. It does, as believers. You know, the things we view, the things we listen to, the people we hang around. There can be a lot of solicitations to evil there. And there is throughout this world. It's, it's, this world is loaded with those things. Uh, it goes on to the next verse here. James 1.14. James 1.14 says, But every man is tempted, notice, when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. See, so there again, even temptation itself is not sin, as we know. But when we're drawn away of our own lust and enticed, there's the old nature at work. And of course, for the lost person, that's all they have. That's all they have is the old nature. But for those of us that are saved, we can still allow ourselves to be drawn away of our own lust and enticed. Uh, one of the writers has said this about that word drawn away, those words drawn away. That the picture here is that like of a hunter or a fisherman luring his prey from its safe retreat. I don't have any experience really with hunting, but I know quite a bit about fishing. Growing up in South Florida, my dad was involved in a marine collecting business, collecting aquarium fish, but we did a lot of fishing too, rod and reel fishing. And I know this, okay, this is not going to be a profound statement. You will not likely catch fish without bait or a lure, okay? If, you've, if you just take a take a rod and reel and put a, with a hook and you just throw it out there. You do that all. I mean, unless there's a whole bunch and you snag one. I guess that's part. I mean, that's, that, that does happen once in a while. You've got a big school of them or something. You know. Otherwise, no. Why? Because you have to put bait or lure to attract the fish, you see. And that's what Satan and this world system use. They have all kinds of baits and all kinds of lures for anybody and everybody. And just like different fish need different bait, you know, that's a reality. You have to use different bait and different lures for different fish, different conditions. That's why expert fishermen say, yeah, if it's this kind of lighting, you've got to use this kind of lure and this kind of bait, whatever, for this kind of fish. Satan is world system, no mankind. And this system is, is rigged and set up with all kinds of baits and lures, even for us as believers. And you know what? Just like fish are deceived by those things, but we don't want to be deceived. We have to guard against that. And so uh, turn, if you would, to uh, Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17. I want to look at this in, right now. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. 
Galatians 5, starting with verse 16. It says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There is a contrast there. Walking in the Spirit is part of the Christian life, the Christian walk. It's an ongoing progression. It's an ongoing thing. It can't be something we just said we did a couple years ago or last week or something. And then verse 17 says, For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit. Flesh here is the old nature. And the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that he cannot do the things that you would. So there's that spiritual battle that any child of God has. Now hopefully, as we grow in the Lord, we'll have more victory and we'll, grow, and we'll have less of a battle. But anybody that tells you they no longer have any conflict in their life is deceived themselves. Because this idea that people can reach a point where they just quit sinning is not taught in the Word of God. That's, a, that's called perfectionism or sinless perfectionism. Uh, Wesleyans, you know, some uh, different groups like that, of different, uh, Nazarenes and so forth, teach that, but it's not biblical. Uh, they can, what they've done in some cases, people that teach that, is they've redefined sin. <laughs> it's boo-boos and mistakes or whatever. It's not like, like, pol- like the politicians we were talking about earlier, you know, where it's no longer... A, but no, I'm sorry, sin is always missing the mark of a holy God. Anything and everything that, goes, that misses the mark of a holy God is sin. And so there is, in fact, a struggle there. The Apostle Paul talked about a struggle in his own life in the book of Romans. And so, you know, uh, if Apostle Paul still dealt with that, we should think that somehow that we shouldn't think somehow that we no longer would have to. But it is a mark uh, of being saved. Again, the person who says, "Well, I don't have any problem with the things in the world." <laughs> uh, again, something's going on. Something's not right there. Something's not right there. Either they're not saved at all, or they're just deceived. But um, so we see here then, in order to keep a close fellowship with God, we need to keep our sins confessed. First uh, John 1, verses 8 and 9, if we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves. See, that's one of the best verses we can go to that shows that perfectionism isn't biblical. The person says we have no sin. And then John says if we say, John's including himself in here, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we see there the importance of Believers keeping short accounts with God. You know, in uh, winding down the message this morning, a few more thoughts here, but just some, some, some things here to consider. You know, God created man with a free will. That's right. We're not machines. Uh, we're not, uh, you know, it's, I, don't, I totally reject the hyper-sovereignty idea of God uh, that Calvinists promote. That everything that happens is God's will. No, I'm sorry, everything that happens is not God's will. God doesn't want us to sin. So that can't be God's will. It's never God's will for that. God hates sin. So he did create man with a free will, and therefore man bears a personal responsibility. Getting back to the theme of the message, the title of the message. This is for, the, for dealing with law. If there's someone here that's lost, if there's someone here without Christ, before you can ever think about as a believer keeping short sin accounts with God, you have to first of all be a believer. Okay, you have to first of all be a child of God, as we dealt with some in Sunday school. You know, so every a man bears a personal responsibility to either accept or reject Christ as Savior. Now, you know, we as believers can be a stumbling block to lost people. I hope we never would be. We should try. That's where having that consistent Christian testimony ties in, right? We don't want to be that stumbling block. But that being said. In the end, in the end, that lost person is personally accountable to God. 
They can't say, well, it's somebody, the great white throne judgment is not going to be somebody else's fault, okay? It's going to be them for rejecting Christ. But the message has mainly been directed for us as saved people. You know, for the saved person, that accountability will be at the judgment seat of Christ. We looked at uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10 at the beginning. Let's look at it again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. It says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, that's a statement, and there's actually several places that it talks about the judgment seat of Christ, that the reality is that we believe after the rapture, somewhere at that, after that point, will be the judgment seat of Christ. But that's only for believers. I'm thankful, though, it's not about salvation at that point. I'm thankful it's not about whether we make it to heaven. No. We'll be, it'll be the judgment seat of Christ for those that are in Christ, for the believers, for the saints of God. But, uh, you know, it will be a time of accounting for what we have and haven't done for the Lord. And as one pastor said, I remember years ago, saying about that, you know, it's going to be a sober time, sobering time. It's not going to be some a carefree time. Not, thank the Lord, it's nothing about our salvation at that point. That settled at Calvary, wasn't it? It was settled for us as believers when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But uh, there's not a general there's not a general judgment like some people teach. I've heard some independent Baptist preachers so t- treat end time so casually or so nebulously, maybe I can put it that way, so with such confusion, where they kind of just made it sound like everybody's at the same judgment. That that is not lined up with the Word of God. There are two separate judgments, as I think most of you already well know. Uh, the judgment seat of Christ for church-age saints is after the rapture, while the great white throne judgment for the lost is after the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. So now we're talking a thousand years or so difference between the two. So they cannot be the same. Okay, They cannot be the same if we're going to be honest with the Word of God. You know, tragically, all people, who die in their sins without Christ will face him at the great white throne judgment. And just want to briefly look at uh, Revelation chapter 20. Just a couple verses here. Starting with verse 11. Revelation chapter 20. Now here we have the great white throne judgment. This is after the thousand year millennial reign. This is really the point where um, the the lost of all time are, put, are at this great white throne judgment. Because after this, after is after this is just an eternal state. Because after this, everybody that's lost will be in eternal fire, Gehenna hell. Okay, sadly, those that have died in past dispensations, those that have died in this church age, and those that died during the tribulation, or during, those that are those that are born and don't accept Christ during the uh, millennial reign, they're all going to be the ones that are all lost of all ages are going to be at this great white throne judgment. So Revelation 20.11 says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was no place found, no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Of course, we know, in fact, it's God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I think it's interesting here, just stop for a minute. I saw the dead, small and great. You know, I have a message called God is no respecter of persons. And isn't it interesting that it doesn't matter what their status in life was, whether they were rich or poor, whether they were powerful or no, had no power, whether they were 
you know, prominent people or just insignificant people, in the end, it's the, it's the, it's the uh, small and great. They're all going to stand. Why? Because they all are there without Christ. They all share that in common. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So it, of course, as we understand, it is not, you know, they're all lost. And this is simply a pronouncement of their judgment. And, and I understand that there's a, Certainly, the I think I, I mean I, I think that there's I don't know if I'm dogmatic, but I think there's at least a strong possibility that also the idea of degrees of punishment. I think you would find something here suggesting that, you know, I'm I'm pretty lean pretty strong that way, uh, and so I think that's that seems to be brought out here as well. So that's the lost. You know, there's someone here who's lost, and I don't know anyone here that's old enough to understand is, but if there is someone here who's lost. You know, again, as I said earlier in the message, personal responsibility first and foremost starts with realizing that you are lost. Well, it's hard to find lost people today, isn't it? And what I mean by that is not that it's hard to find lost people in the, in the physical sense, but it's hard to find lost people that realize they're lost. There's so, you know, we have so much nominal. It's the opposite of Japan, although it's getting more that way, where there almost everybody will tell you they're not a Christian. In America, a whole, especially in this area, okay, a whole bunch of people will tell you. I don't, I don't have, I, know, uh, I guess it was a couple of years ago. It was Alice as a supporting church in, in Rocky Mount and area. And uh, she, we were coming back, driving up Route 15. I don't know how, we were counting all the Baptist churches we went by. And I forgot what huge number we had accumulated, you know. It was a lot, okay. Boy, it's a slew. But, uh, you know, so many that, don't recognize their lost condition. But, uh, you know, if there's someone here who is lost, I would encourage you to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior today. If you understand you're lost, where I know your pastor here, I know this church doesn't stand for quick professionism or presto, one, two, three. But if a person's been moved along in their spiritual understanding and realizes they're in their lost condition, they do need to come to Christ before it is eternally too late. Acts 20, 21 testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks. And I think this is a great verse. It really brings it out. Repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. You see what we clearly see brought out there in Acts 20, 21. Repentance towards God. Understanding a person's... Repentance, understanding their lost condition. Understanding they are lost. Understanding they're a sinner in need of a Savior. Understanding that they have nothing they can do of their own. And then faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Not any works. I'm so glad about that. But then the message primarily has been for us as believers. Okay? That's what the thr main thrust of the message has been. And the fact that while the lost just instinctively, because it is part of the old nature, want to make excuses for sin, don't want to accept personal responsibility, do want to practice pragmatism, you know, whatever works, uh, just want to, you know, you know, the ends justify the means and so forth and so on. That's the, how the lost in America particularly work today. That's where our culture's just gotten worse and worse about that. It really has. I, mean, I think a lot of us are a little bit older. Okay? I don't know what old is anymore, but we'll, we'll say older. Okay? I'll, be, I'll be 61 in December, so, so I'm not sure what old is anymore, but I, older, I like that. Okay? 
So we've seen, I think, in our own lives where there was a time, even in our culture, where more people were willing to accept personal responsibility, even as lost people. Why? Because the culture still was that way. But the culture's moved a lot. The culture continues to move. So that's the loss, but again, we have to realize that we have an old nature that will never accept personal responsibility when it comes to sin and not pleasing God. And I appreciate the special we had right before the message. I thought that fit in well with the message. Praise the Lord for that. So for those of us who are saved, let's not make excuses for sin and instead desire to keep short accounts with God.